All right, it is January 3rd. It's the first Sunday of 2021. Welcome to the new year. Welcome to our service today. I hope you are well. We ended off last week um, on December 27th of 2020, our last sermon of the year on Christ, His Second Coming. Today we look now to the book of Judges. Uh, and this year we're going to begin with an in-depth study of the book of Judges. So if you have a Bible, open it up. Uh, it's early on in the Old Testament. Uh, should be right before 1 Samuel. And uh, if it's not, your Bible is, is wrong. <laughs> um, but it should be right there in the um, first, few, first few books of the Old Testament. Uh, and open it up to Book of Judges. We're going to read the first 10 verses. So it's Judges chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. If you've never read the Book of Judges, uh, it is pretty intense. And so I purposely did that because... Uh, a lot of times, of course, uh, we misunderstand or misconstrue um, the God of the Old Testament at times because of our sort of presuppositions and other thoughts that we might have and our sensitivity to certain things in a modern context. Uh, but I want to read through it and I want to go verse by verse because I don't want to omit anything. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. And uh, we want to look at it exegetically. So let's look at Judges 1, 1 to 10. And I'll read, and you can follow along in your Bible. And this is what the Word of God reads. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000, and they defeated 10,000 men of Bezek. Uh, they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adoni Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut, out, cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, uh, used to gather up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Amen. What an encouraging word for beginning of a new year, right? Uh, a lot of war there, <laughs> but um, that is the word for today, and we're going to go through it, and I'm going to give you an introduction to the book of Judges, and give you a little context so that you know exactly where we are in Israel, Israelite, and biblical history. <clears throat> now, we just finished CrossCon, and they talked a lot about unreached people groups, right, and all these things, and this is exactly why um, every Sunday, people have asked me why we would do this, but every Sunday before we preach the word, uh, as we take time to pray for the world and for the word to minister to us, we also pray for an unreached people group of the day. Now, if you have a phone, if you have any mobile device, or if you have a computer in front of you, you could always go to joshuaproject.com and look at exactly what we're looking at today, which is the unreached people group of the day. So if you have some time today, if you have some um, the moment to pray, or if you have a time to pray today, I would recommend you to do so. Just download the app, go on the website, and they have it right on the front, it's unreached people group of the day and they have this every day 365 days a year and you can pray every day for an unreached people group so today's unreached people group comes from india that 
called the Guria, and there are about 730,000 of these people, mainly Hindu, and uh, unfortunately none are evangelical Christians. And so they are an unreached people group living in the what would be the eastern regions of India uh, along the coast. And so we'd like to pray for these people. Now, of course, uh, we are dealing with uh, con continuous record-breaking um, COVID cases here in Ontario with deaths and, you know, just chaos, right? Um, uh, so we'd like to pray uh, for people who are suffering at this time, uh, amidst the season, people with businesses like local businesses, people who are uh, suffering due to uh, maybe because of COVID, maybe a family or friend has, has COVID, uh, people who've lost loved ones, people who are working on front lines, etc. Uh, they are continuing to address these things. Uh, but I'd like to specifically pray this day for the wisdom of our premier, uh, our Ontario government, as well as our municipal government in Toronto, as well as our federal government in uh, across Canada. So we'd like to pray for the leadership in Canada to be wise, uh, to exercise good counsel in leading the country uh, through and out of this season of COVID. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much to gather us this day, um, this beautiful snowy day, um, Lord, as we gather um, and as we join hearts uh, to worship. I pray, O oh Lord, that our focus would be on the word, that, Lord, our attention would be to uh, truth that is contained here, and that we would retain and receive what is uh, powerful in this word in changing and more informing our lives. God, I also pray for um, the Guria of India, and we pray for this unreached people group, that, Lord, they would hear the gospel and that they would come to know Jesus Christ, um, that they would put their faith and trust in him. Father, through the ministry of missionaries and churches and the church of India, that these people, oh Lord, would hear the gospel and respond faithfully. God, we pray for the Guria. Lord, we pray for the leadership of Canada, of Ontario, of Toronto. We pray for um, Premier, oh sorry, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Premier Doug Ford, and Mayor John Tory. We pray, Lord Father, for their wisdom. We pray, Lord Father, for uh, good people around them exercising uh, good counsel and and taking what information they know and doing and making the best decisions possible uh, for the citizens and for the well-being of the citizens of Canada, of Ontario, of Toronto. We pray, O oh Lord, for um, people who have lost loved ones, people who are going through perhaps um, ramifications and consequences of COVID. Pray for them. Pray for people who are losing businesses and suffering, um, perhaps economically because of that, um, and other things. People who are just all, you know, just being affected so heavily because of COVID. We pray, oh Lord. Um, yeah, we just pray that, Father, we would come out of the season and hopefully be able to regain those things and be strengthened. Um, Father, those, of course, are just temporary earthly things, uh, but we still seek, Lord Father, uh, for you to uh, protect us at this time. And perhaps this is the exact word we need. That we are to inquire, seek, and receive in faith. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, this is always exciting, right? When we start a new year, we have a new year sermon series, a new book. I love preaching from the Old Testament specifically because it's more difficult. Uh, it's difficult in the sense that a lot of the epistles, a lot of the New Testament writings are written for the purposes of sharing to the church, right? All of the letters are distributed in the New Testament for the purposes of actually orally sharing with the church. So, in a sense, it's a sermon that's already written for me. So I don't have to really like do much. It's like, oh yeah, there's there's the point, there's the thing, there's the argument, there's a thesis, break it down, Paul breaks it down for you, and then all you gotta do is be like, Paul said, right? Um, but in the Old Testament, it's a little bit more 
difficult in the sense that people are not familiar with this. So you gotta explain a little bit more. And then obviously a lot of things in here uh, are uncomfortable for modern readers, especially in the Western world. So we wanna go into this text, understand the reason I chose Judges, um, I should explain this, is because I think the context is really important for us to know. And I think um, understanding what Israel had to go through this season uh, is really, I wanna say it's a parallel, but it's important important lessons that we can learn uh, as we kind of apply them into our context with the pandemic, right? And um, I think it's, it's, it's going to be really helpful for people who listen well, right? If you read and listen well to this text, I think you will benefit greatly from it. And of course, I'm going to say that because I'm going to have to preach for this for the next few months. Um, but I, I genuinely mean that. So if you've never read the book of Judges, I hope this is enlightening. And my prayer, my prayer has been for the last week and a half, that this book would be a blessing to you. So it's going to be uncomfortable at times, but we're going to get through this. Book of Judges, verses or chapter one, one to uh, verses one to ten. Now we're just coming off the Exodus in the Book of Exodus. We have the Levitic, uh, all the Levitical stuff, and all the establishment of Israel, the nation, the religious system, the laws, everything. And then you have Joshua, who leads the nation after Moses, of course, dies, uh, is the second uh, person sort of that is appointed as leader, right, uh, of Israel. He leads them into, of course, famously, uh, leads them into the into the Promised Land, and he is uh, charged with the responsibility of leading. Uh, a military effort to drive out the enemies uh, in Canaan. Now, of course, during this time, during this time where Israel was in Exodus and the promised land that God had given to Abraham as a covenant and as a covenant promise in Genesis, this land became inhabited with idolaters, pagan worshipers, and it was rampant. To look at the Canaanites uh, and the different tribes and peoples that were living in this place and have sympathy for them because oh, they're just innocent people who are just mindlessly, you know, they're just villagers. And These people were wicked people, wicked people in their sin. They were do committing, like, gruesome acts of idolatry and sexual immorality and terrible things against the Lord, and their sins had grew grown, right? And so God's command to Joshua, you must read the Old Testament carefully, is to drive out the Canaanites from the land, not to go and wipe them out. This is not Hitler, you know, telling his Nazi army to go and wipe out like the soldiers like this is not that what this is is God saying take the sword I'll be with you drive them out of the land so what you see uh, a lot of times is in the text you'll see Israel went into the land and they drove out so-and-so ites right and then the ites come back later and you're like what the heck why thought the ites were gone right why how did they come back because they were driven out they were driven out in the sense that they ran away and the only people that they would actually slaughter are the people that would try to remain and defend themselves. Um, people who try to counterattack Israel or other things like that. So you must understand that like, the military uh, efforts of Israel, and there's no archeological evidence for some sort of mass killing of Israel across Canaan. There's just no archeological evidence for that. A lot of this was the fact that Canaanites recognized the power of this mighty God, heard stories like, oh, there's Israel army coming with this God that is like leading them and they would run away. Right? And that's what usually happened. In fact, that was probably 99% of what happened. Right, That's how they conquered them. That's why you see even here. Look, it says they will fight against the Canaanites, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, oh, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. Verse 4, right? But then again, they're, they're there again. Right? right? <laughs> if you just go a few verses down. Oh, and then the Canaanites are still living in Hebron. And they're still living here. They just drove them out. But they have to literally sort of like sift them out from the land. Right? And that's what was happening. So we must understand how these military efforts uh, in conquering the promised land happened, right? Now, of course, this leads to a lot of issues, and the book of Judges is all about those things. So we're living in a time, or we're at the time where 
tail end of Joshua's life, right? And we're going to get the details of his life or the ending of his life in chapter 2. But that's kind of where we are in the history, right? And so here they are in Canaan and they're leaderless and, you know, Joshua's died and they've got all these people now and they've got an army, but they don't know what to do. And that's exactly where we are in history. So today's sermon is entitled After the Death of Joshua, right? No real theological meaning there. Just want to give you a little bit of a timestamp, remind you of where we are, the beginning of the book of Judges. Now, the title of the book of Judges is a direct translation of the Hebrew word Shaphat, which does not hold the meaning of what you and I would, def- or how you and I would define judge, right? If I said define a judge, immediately it's either uh, it's either negative, right? So thus, you know, don't judge one another, right? Like that kind of stuff, that kind of language, or you would go to the courtroom judge image, right? That's sort of like the modern understanding of judge. Uh, but rather, or sorry, so, but this word, shafat, actually holds the meaning closer to a hero, a savior, a deliverer, or if you just put it simply, heroic leader. The heroism of these so-called judges in this book are not so much a display of grandeur or high power, high intelligence, exemplary behavior, or even your typical superhero-like characteristics or even other biblical figures, right? But rather, it's a heroism of teaching God's people their wrongs, shining light on their sins, and guiding them in the right way. There are good examples of judges in this book as well as bad ones. Famously, Samson is the bad judge, right? And uh, we're going to get to that, of course, in this book. And, and so there are good ones and there are bad ones in this book. But each of these judges serves the purpose of teaching what the Old Testament teaches as a whole, as a whole unit, that God is good and we are not. God is good and we are not. G. Campbell Morgan notes on Judges, what we find out about man in Judges, so mankind in the book of Judges, is depressing, he says. But what we find out about God in the book of Judges is wonderful. On the human side, it is a story of disobedience and disaster. And on the divine side, of continued direction and deliverance. In this book, we will read of 12 judges that arose in Israel during this period in its history. That is at times referred to as the Dark Ages. The book takes place at the tail end of Joshua's life, as I mentioned earlier, and before the time of the prophet Samuel and his appointment of King Saul. Now, Samuel is particular, Samuel in a sense is a judge, right? So there's 12 judges in the book of Judges, and at the end of it, you'll see Eli and Samuel. Eli and Samuel, Eli is appointed as a judge, but he's also a high priest, right? And he's a failure at both roles. And then you have Samuel who kind of takes over because Eli is too fat and he like rocks his chair too much and then he falls back and he dies. But um, Samuel comes in and he takes over the role of the high priest judge prophet of all of Israel. And then he appoints, of course, the first king of Israel. Right? We read about this in 1 Samuel, the appointment of King Saul. So, uh, in a sense, there's 14 judges, but the book of Judges focuses on the 12, and then the tail end leading into 1 Samuel, you have Eli and Samuel. Just take note of that. They too are counted as sort of pseudo-judges. The book takes place, uh, sorry, so no author, of course, is, no, of course, no author is mentioned uh, in this book specifically, but uh, many Hebrew historians uh, credit this book to the writings of Samuel, the prophet. Right? Uh, it's typically credited to him because it was likely that at the beginning of King Saul's reign, he started to record these texts. And there's a lot of literary um, evidence for that, but you know, it's not really that important Like in terms of if Samuel wrote it or someone else wrote it. It's a record of the judges. The book itself, and this is really important, please take note of this. The book of Judges is not written in historical 
chronological order. In fact, you should know your Bible, your canon is not in chronological order. Okay, so don't let that mess you up. This is very common in storytelling. Um, reason why, first of all, it helps with memory. And it's, art it's not just artistic for the purpose of being artistic or creative. It's artistic and creative for the purpose of, of, of uh, displaying and demonstrating an important theme or idea. So what I would categorize this book, uh, although it has historical elements to it uh, of a historical document and a historical record, it's written thematically. This is exactly how the book of John is written. Right? The Gospel of John is written thematically. It's not written chronologically. Right? We need to take note of that. Right? Um, and it's really important that we read it this way because you know, you're going to quickly find there's there if for a person who's not a keen Bible reader, they're going to read chapter 1 and go says Verse 1, after the death of Joshua. And then you go to chapter 2 and it says, well, when Joshua had dismissed, verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of, wait, I thought Joshua was dead. What's going on here, right? Immediately you're going to go, oh, the Bible's messed up. It doesn't work. It's contradicting itself. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's just terrible reading. We do this in movies, right? You have a movie, it's going, and then you have a flashback to another scene that goes back in time, right? You don't watch the movie and go, oh, well, that's not accurate, right? That's it, just not how it works. Storytelling at times has elements of these things. They shift back and forth in time to thematically display something important, right? And for us, that's, that's important for us to understand about the book of Judges. Um, so that's another thing I wanted to get across to you, but rather it's written thematically. This is something we find in a lot of ancient writings as this book's purpose is clearly meant to teach spiritually more so than record historically. Now, as mentioned previously, this book marks a tragic time in, Israel, in Israel's history and one that follows on the heels of Moses and Joshua's mostly successful leadership of Israel. John MacArthur calls this book a tragic sequel to the book of Joshua. Israel is marked by disobedience, idolatry, and military defeat, and, and above all else, apostasy. All signs of, sinful and faith, of, a fa of a sinful and a faithless nation. Israel begins with a subtle departure from faithfulness, but eventually it leads to outright apostasy and complete departure from God. At the end of the book of Judges, you will see how despairing their state is at the end of it. The book marks this transition, transition and details the outcome of such failure before God. MacArthur, again, notes five distinct reasons for Israel's decline. One, disobedience in driving out the Canaanites in accordance with God's command. Number two, idolatry. Number three, intermarriage. Number four, not heeding the judges. And five, turning away from God. What brilliantly and obviously comes through to keen readers of the Bible here is the mercy of God and His grace. Right? Amidst all of this despair and this disaster, you will very clearly see, if you read properly, the mercy of God. And I think that's what Samuel, or the author, whoever wrote this, is trying to get across to us. And where do we see that? In His deliverance and protection of His people. That's going to be my thesis for today. God's covenant continues to graciously deliver Israel from its enemies and its evils, but not without consequence or punishment for their sins. Even in the midst of a time when people did as they wished, God did what he promised. Isn't that beautiful? Even when people continue to do what they want to do, God will continue to do what he promises. And that is mind-blowing to me. 
It reminds me of Romans 5.8. He died for us while we were yet sinners. This is the beauty, power, and hope of God's covenantal love, mercy, and grace. Let's go into it. Verse 1. The book of Judges begins with the events of the conquering of Jerusalem. Shortly following the death of Joshua, chapter 2 will give us a flashback to when Joshua was alive and chronicle the details of his death. And we'll get there. The loss of Joshua and Israel's leader, fearless leader, conqueror, you know, the guy who, you know, uh, did the whole, like, you know, walk around the castle seven times thing, that guy, and he's gone. He left a major void in Israel's perspective and thus put Israel into its first period in which it did not have a clear singular leader. Moses, Joshua, blank. But here's the reality, and I think this is what the book of Judges is trying to get across to us from the very beginning, from the get-go. God is the leader. And he's always been the leader. It's never been Moses. It's never been Joshua. It's always been God. This meant that they would need to learn to trust and follow God fully and wholeheartedly. A lesson that at times believers miss out because we yield to our earthly leaders, whether it be our pastor or other people, even those appointed by God, we yield to them and depend on them as if they were God or His voice. But we cannot do that. This opening verse sets the stage in terms of context, time, period, condition, and historical importance of the events to follow. I've already gone through that. I won't go through it again. An inquiry is made to God here by the Israelites, and it's a good inquiry. This is a good start, at least. Now that Israel was without a military leader, they come to God and they ask him, who will go up and fight the Canaanites to conquer the land God had promised? A good beginning, if you will. Verse 2, God responds to the inquiry and directs Judah to go up first. Now, if that house of Judah or the tribe of Judah doesn't sound familiar to you, you weren't paying attention for the last four weeks. House of Judah, of course, is where King David, Jesus, comes out, right? Judah, in many ways, is, of course, the lead tribe and used in many ways throughout Scripture as an example for the other tribes. Not to mention that this would ultimately be the tribe of, as I mentioned earlier, King David and Jesus Christ. So perhaps it was appropriate for them to go before the others. There's no significance to that, but I think there's, uh, there's sort of like a theme there. There's a consistent pattern of Judah being a representation and example for Israel throughout the Old Testament. Anyways, we continue. Uh, Here is the right pattern in the book of Judges for the people of God to follow. Seek and ask of the Lord. Jesus tells us to do that. Why? If we seek and we ask and knock, we will find. He will guide us in His ways. doesn't mean that everything we seek and everything we ask, we will get a specific answer for all of those prayers and questions. But when we seek the guidance and inquire of the guidance of God, I think God would willingly do these things for us. Like he would give some kind of guidance. Uh, and at times that guidance could be silence. And at times that, gu- uh, that guidance could be very um, direct and clear. This pattern is consistent throughout the book of Judges. But it is when God's people deviate from genuine trust that things begin to go wrong. And we'll see that in the book of Judges. Verses 3 to 4. Judah reaches out to Simeon and asks for help. Okay, when it says Judah, we're talking about the entire tribe of Judah. Judah himself is dead. Simeon himself is dead. This is the house. This is the house of Judah, house of Simeon, etc., right? Um, so Judah reaches out to Simeon and asks for help in taking their territory. Now, immediately, one might read this as a faithless act, right? It's like, oh, God told him to go. But then they go to their brother and they're like, hey, will you mind helping me out, right? Um, it's not a faithless act. It's not. We can't read it that way. It's not one that compromises their obedience of God in fully trusting his promise to deliver, but rem- but rather, and remember, 
that Judah and Simeon are blood brothers, right? Sons of Leah, uh, Genesis 29, along with, of course, Levi. There was a closeness to these tribes, and if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will continue to see the interconnectivity between these two houses, Judah, Simeon, etc. And it was engraved sort of in their birth roots. Judah's reaching out to Simeon was not an act of weakness or faithlessness, but an act of brotherhood. Note that Judah's offer to Simeon does not contain any hint of lack or faith in victory. He doesn't say, hey, God told me to do this, uh, but I think I'm going to need your help. <laughs> right? It's not, oh, God said he would do this, but uh, you mind helping me out just in case? Right? It's not that. It's not an act of weakness or faithlessness. It's actually, God promised me to, that he's going to deliver us in this. Uh, you want to come along? <laughs> it's an invitation in a sense. Their invitation is rather... Uh, to partake together in the deliverance that God had promised. And they, in turn, offer the same allegiance to Simeon's future conquests. This is, in many ways, an example of Christian unity. Paul, later, would describe this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the body of Christ, famously, right? We are meant to work together in our labor. This is, a very, different, this is very different from Israel's wicked kings later on, reaching out to other nations for military help out of fear that God will not deliver or protect them. Firstly, they never inquire of God, never demonstrate trust in God's deliverance or protection, and they yield themselves to other earthly kings and idols of pagan nature. So this, this is completely different from those, those contexts and those situations, right? So we must read this carefully. This is not faithlessness, but rather... Uh, it's a demonstration of unity between Judah and Simeon. Verses 5 to 7. The city of Bezek was ruled by a cruel and ruthless militant king named, appropriately, Adoni Bezek. Now, if that sounds familiar, Adoni, that beginning means Lord. Of course, it's the stem root word of Adonai, right? So, Lord of, and Bezek means lightning. So, the name itself means the Lord of lightning. He was so full of himself that he called himself the Lord of lightning. Bezek was much farther uh, north of Judah's territory. But they were willing to fight for the cause of their fellow other tribes in removing a dangerous threat in the area and the territory that they were within. The Lord indeed delivered Judah's territory to them in conquering the Canaanites and Perizzites and even in the capturing of Adonibazek, so God delivers here. Now here's the note. Judah and Simeon acted on their convictions in military senses to pursue this king even though... Uh, we have no mention of any direction from God on this point. However, it appears to us that justice was meant to be served in the pursuit of this wicked king, as his capture ultimately led to the cutting off of his thumbs and big toes. You might wonder, well, that's peculiar. Why would you cut off his thumbs and his big toes? Well, this was a common practice that disabled men from being able to fight in battle. And here we find that he himself, the king, Adonibazek, was doing the very same thing to other kings that he conquered. And then he made them eat, like, you know, sit under his table, right? And what did, what did he make them do? Gather up scraps under his table. How do you gather without no toes and <laughs> fingers and thumbs, right? Anyways, this is what he did. It's a wicked king. So they kind of enact the same thing against him. Now, what is interesting is that Adonibazek himself, without any sort of, like, indication from any statement from the armies of Judah or, or uh, Simeon, he confesses, right? He confesses that he deserves this treatment. As he himself performs such an act against 70 other kings that he conquered, he views his treatment as justice. Isn't that weird? And not just that, but as justice not served by Judah, not served by Simeon, not served by Israel. By who? So God has repaid me. 
right? God is serving justice and repaying his evil. In the end, brothers and sisters, we've talked about this a lot. When all come face to face with the holy God, what will happen is they face this holy God of the universe. All will realize their sinfulness. All will realize their guilt and the punishment that they deserve. Nobody, nobody will cry, this is unfair, or this is injustice, or this is a cruel God. No one will say that. Everyone will look to God, the faithful and the faithless, and they will say one thing, we deserve hell. And those who enter heaven's gates will know that they are there by grace. And those who enter hell's doom will know that they are there by justice. Verses 8 to 10, the final three verses of our text today. Some important and historical geographic locations are conquered and occupied in these verses by Judah. And um, they are, of course, Jerusalem, which is, I mean, tremendously important, right? I can't even, like, do I need to explain how important Jerusalem is? Jerusalem continues to be important today, continues to be fought over today, right, in 2021, right? Um, and then you have the hill country, the Negev, the lowlands, right? If you ever get a chance to visit Israel, if you ever get a chance to visit Jerusalem, and if you ever get a chance to go down to Galilee and you get to see all, all these places, uh, I think, I mean, know your Bible. The more you know your Bible and, and then you go to this place and you see it for yourself, I think it will be extraordinary for you. But Jerusalem, of course, is one of the oldest inhabited cities on earth, over 5,000 plus years of inhab inhabitants. It has been conquered and occupied by numerous nations and kingdoms. There is a great historical and spiritual significance to the city and Judah's retrieval of Jerusalem is noteworthy for all the same reasons. The Jews want Jerusalem, the Muslims want Jerusalem, the Christians want Jerusalem, everybody wants Jerusalem. <laughs> so here, they get it back. And you might find it weird in verse 8, at least I found it weird, that they take it and then they set the city on fire. Right? Well, why would they do that? Well, they're cleansing it. They're cleansing it of its pagan idolatry. They're cleansing it of all of these things. These, these evil things that were done here. Right? So they can rebuild it. And then, of course, they go down to the hill country and Negev and Nolans. If you know Jerusalem, it's on Mount Jerusalem. It's on a mountain, literally. And it looks down towards Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and it has all these, like, rolling hills and valleys and other mountainous regions in the area. If you go a little bit past Jerusalem, there's open water and all these things, right? So they go down to the hill country, the Negev, the lowlands, and Jerusalem sits atop, of course, a strategic mountain spot where armies can gain advantage, right? Optically as well as just having height. That's why castles are usually built on mountains, to have the, a military advantage against their opposition. It is from this position that Judah is able to strategically conquer and claim the surrounding regions of Jerusalem. This was a sweeping and decisive overtaking of Israelite territory, land that God had promised to give, and there he delivers them convincingly to victory. But this will not be the pattern. As much as the book of Judges opens with all these conquerings and these successive conquerings, this is not the pattern in the book of Judges. We're just setting up the story for you, right? These victories sit in contrast, unfortunately, to what is to come. And if anything, they serve as an example of what Israel should do. Too many Christians today I have met in past sort of their teens and past their 
I guess I, I hate this word, but let's just let's just call it what it is. They're young adult, period, right? By the way, there's no such thing as young adult. Being a young adult is an excuse to just do stupid things as an adult. You're not a young adult. You're an adult. So act like it, right? Uh, so when so when you are a younger adult, um, that period, you know, everyone looks back on it. So many people, alumni, people who are married now, people who are, you know, sort of reaching their 30s or in their 30s. I meet them and almost consistently what I hear is, oh, man, I wish I had faith like I did back then. Oh, man, I look back at my years of like all these things. Those are my spiritual highs. Those are my spiritual climaxes or whatever. And I go, that's so sad. Right? What happened to you? <laughs> right? Don't let this be the case. Don't be the living example of the book of Judges. Don't be like, oh, I started off well and then it was just down <laughs> from there, right? Brothers and sisters, our trajectory and projection should be, of course, upward. Our sanctification should be upward. Right? You may not have be experiencing the same things as sensation, but perhaps that's what you needed to be removed. I'll be honest with you, as a Christian, I'm not as excited and as passionate for everything God as I used to be, right? Early, like later in my high school years and then early university years. Yeah, I don't have that same like, oh my gosh, you're going to go die for Jesus in the middle of the middle, you know, I'm going to go to the Middle East and just die. And I had this whack dream once. Um, like, I wanted to go to, like, Mecca, like, just launch into Mecca through, like, skydiving or something and just be like, Jesus is your savior, and then just die. That's why, I, that's how I wanted to die. I literally asked, I remember sitting at a conference and some sister asked me, she's like, what's your prayer time? And that was my, I was like, that's how I want to go out, <laughs> right? Just jump out of a plane, skydiving, parachute, and just have, like, Jesus is your, Jesus is king, and just die as a bunch of people kill me. Um... And as crazy as it sounds, that just sounds crazy, right? But as I've matured in my faith, I think it's a lot like our actual, like, human, um, pro like, progression, right? When you're a teenager, when you're an adult, you, you have all these wild dreams. I want to be an astronaut, I want to be president, I want to be prime minister, blah, 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 blah. And then reality sets. Right? Oh, crap, it's really hard to make 50K. Oh shoot, income tax? What is this? School debt? What? I gotta pay my rent? How much is a car? Like when you're a kid, you're so naive to these things. You have no idea what it takes. And the world just tells you, oh, you can be anything you want. You should dream it and just, you know, sky's the limit, blah, 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 right? It's like, okay, I'm gonna be an NBA basketball player. I'm gonna be a little. And then reality sets. Some of us make it. And what happens when reality sets? In your real life, not your spiritual life, just earthly life, you get disappointed. Right? And once reality hits, and, and, the, and the really like, the truly smart ones, this is what happens. When that reality sets, you go, okay, I adjust to that. Now I adjust. Because now I understand. That it's not just dreaming dreams that gets me there. But it's actually working for those things. Putting the time and effort into those things. It's not just randomly falling in love with some person that I meet. 
and then it's like a fairy tale ending to my life. This is not a Disney movie. You are not the star of some Disney movie. You're not. That's not what happens. Some people, but not everyone. So in our maturity, what happens? After that point of disappointment, those who truly understand, take the reality and they say, okay, now this is what I work with and I do my best. Brothers and sisters, when we look at our faith life, sometimes we look back at all those conferences and retreats and all those things we did as a kid with no understanding of what those things really were or no really under, understanding that this is not, the, you're not going to live this out for 60 years of your life. Right? It takes daily reading of scripture. Daily dedication to prayer. Daily humbly coming before God. Seeking his word. Seeking his gospel. To transform you little by little. In Hebrew we call it me'od. Tiny little things. Particles of your life. One by one. Rooting out those sins. And that is hard work. And it takes a lifetime. So you look back at your life and don't get caught up in those like passions and emotions. But every day you wake up, you wake up to new mercies. You come before God in faith. And just take step by step. Every year, the first thing I try to do as soon as the clock turns 12 a.m., I open my Bible. And this is what I read, 2 Samuel 22. 29, my favorite verse. You, O Lord, on my lamp, you turn my darkness into light. We walk with God as a lamp to our feet, step by step. And that is my prayer for you, brothers and sisters, that the, the thing that Israel lost, although they had here, was this very mindset. Have you ever watched or read Harry Potter, the movie or the, or the book or whatever? Did you read these things? I don't condone witchcraft or wizardry for all of you. Pharisees out there um, as a religious practice uh, but one character comes to mind today and that being Professor Snape if you know the story you will get what I mean easily and if you don't well I'm about to ruin Harry Potter for you so you don't have to watch it anymore Snape of course is the famous professor at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft, Witchcraft and Wizardry um, and he torments Harry Harry's the main character he torments this guy he's just makes his life miserable all throughout his years in Hogwarts and the school that he attended. Snape is portrayed throughout the book and the movie all the way until the end as this villainous and evil character. He always seems like a bad, he's, he looks sleazy. He has like black greasy hair, he's just dark, he's pale, he's, he looks gross. Anyway, but what, he, what we discover in the end is that he's actually the most beautiful character. See, in the end, what we discover is that as a child, he had this affectionate love towards Harry's mother. And he makes this promise to the head wizard professor guy, Dumbledore, and he makes this promise to protect Harry as a sign of love for this person. And so when Harry is threatened, when Harry goes through troubled times, when people are trying to bring him down or kill him, he was always there protecting him. Now, by no means does this even come close to comparing to God's love to any human or, or to any human love. Like God's love cannot be compared to any love that any human can display, whether fictional or non-fictional. But what I'm trying to get across here as an insight is to knowing 
that God's love for his people, firmly rooted in his covenant and promise to us, is ever protecting and ever victorious. And yet, it remains hidden in our hearts. Why? Because we're so sinful. And so sometimes we look at God and we see a villain. And we ask, are you really for me? It may not always feel that way or seem that way to you, but the blanket of his grace is coated over your life. It's like salt. You can't see it, but it's there. Sometimes the greatest of loves is overlooked and unseen because of our short-sightedness and our self-centeredness and our sinfulness. Take away two things from this text. Conclude. One, God's people are to live in total trust and faith in God in all things. What a simple lesson for today, right? How can that even, how could that be any simpler? But it's that simple, yet it's so hard. That simple, yet so hard. We are to inquire about Him and follow Him in all that we do. He is our true leader. Point number two, all will receive what they deserve in the end. God's rule is just and His mercy is fair. No sinner will go unaccounted for. For all sins will be repaid, either on the cross or in hell. Adam Clark, I quote him to end today. There is, he writes, however, one light. One light in which the whole book of Judges may be viewed, which renders it in valuable. It is a most remarkable history of the long suffering of God towards the Israelites, in which we find the most signal instances of his justice and mercy alternately displayed. The people sinned and were punished. They repented and found mercy. Something of this kind we meet with on every page. And these things are written for our warning. None should presume for God is just. None need despair, for God is merciful. Amen. Let's take some time to reflect on what we've learned today and uh, gain from it. Let's pray.